0: Good morning again, everyone. We're about to, uh, to embark on a new series, um, and I'll highlight that in just a moment. But uh, one of the greatest inventions I think that has happened in recent years, and there are many of them, but one of them is GPS on your phone. I don't know about you, but uh, it's one of the greatest things that you can have. My wife who's an independent contractor, travels around to different homes to serve as an occupational therapist, and she is every night, because she's been working quite a bit. In fact, her workload went up about 250% in the last three months. I said 70, my wife's like, what do you mean 70? It's like triple that. So um, she's there every night making sure that her GPS is set for the next day. Like she's really sitting there and making sure because she needs to know how long it's going to take. Because years ago when we traveled to Dallas Theological Seminary from Pennsylvania, which is a 1,500-mile trip, we uh, had pieces of paper in front of us. We printed them out um, from different direction, you know, sites. And we didn't know what was ahead of us. I mean, when you go for the first time in February of 2000, we went for the first time never been past New Jersey in my life because I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. I had no clue what was in front of me. But when you had to go 81 to 40 to 30, and when you think that you're traveling along, you don't know if you're hitting bridges or not. It doesn't tell much about where you, what you're going to hit. It just tells you the direction to go. And so I found myself just amazed. Years I look back now and still young thinking, man, how did we used to do it before GPS? And now now it's not only GPS, some of you might look at me, strange, what is GPS? The Global Positioning System, because usually you you use it freestanding, but now it's in your phone. Now they have this thing called Waze. It's an app called Waze, uh, W-A-Z-E. And you can even choose the voice that you want. You can use a British accent, if you like. You can use a New York accent, I guess, if you like. They even have boy bands. So you can sing your, they can sing your directions to you. Uh, How many of you know about that? How many of you just don't care? There you go. That's about it. Okay, well, great. I was going to sing something, but I guess you guys are not interested. Um, but, uh, but I was going to, you know, just tell you that it's so funny because my wife put on the boy band. Jeremy was the one who told my wife, saying, do boy band. And I heard it and I was like, that's, that's hideous. That's bad. I mean, it's like, take a right, take a left, watch the pothole. You know, it's like, it's just crazy. And I'm like, but the idea is that when you have a GPS, it helps you not only to tell you where to go, but it gives you something ahead. For instance, traffic tells you whether or not there's an accident, whether or not there's something ahead that could be construction work. It's really helpful when you're traveling two hours to come to church, and it's really helpful when you have to know what you which road to take next. So some of you that only have to travel ten minutes, I have to travel up to two hours. So it's a real helpful tool. But how about with God? What's His positional? system god's positional system did god give us directions to follow do you put you input your location or does he because when you go to open up maps on your phone and there's a search spot there that says put your destination in here where you want to go the address who's putting it in there is it us or is it god and so as i thought about that I thought about Jonah and the prophet and how God himself had a particular direction that he wanted him to go. And we know the story, but we're going to look at it for the next three weeks. I want to encourage you and turn to Jonah chapter one, Jonah chapter one. We're going to talk a little bit about Jonah and his life and being a prophet of God and how important uh, it was at the time of the background and the context one being that it was around in the 700 BCs just prior to the 722 Assyrian uh, takeover of Samaria and of Israel. And we, we noticed that Jonah had, um, had been told by God, commanded by God to go um, to Nineveh, which is a city in the, in the Assyrian area of the kingdom. And so as we look at that, we have to think about what, if we're thinking about God's global positioning system, like the global positioning system, how would we think about that and what would that look like? And so as we, as we are about to unveil that, I want, I want to turn uh, to chapter um, 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come upon before me. I'm just going to read through verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down to it, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So twice we already see in verse 3, the that he was trying to travel away from the presence of the Lord. Now, a few things to look at in, in verse 2. In, in verse 2, it says, arise and go. In the Hebrew, it says, go immediately. In fact, in the Hebrew, in the language, it's called a hendeos. It's a verbal hendeos. And what that means is that's taking two verbal forms and placing them together, but yet you can use them together and to make an expression. So it's kind of like a kind way, yet God is saying to them that I want you to go, or he's saying to Jonah, I want you to go at once. Arise and go is the literal translation of in the Hebrew. But go at once from the living Bible is even more accurate because there's an immediate command, there's immediate, an immediacy to move. So when, you, when we see go immediately, he's not saying when you have a chance. Go. It's kind of like with Abraham. He said, Go. How often do we hear the word from the Holy Spirit, Go? How often are we even hearing him at all? I mean, how, you know, it's it's that immediate go. And so with force, with intensity, God's saying he must go. Now, when you're looking at this verse two, you know, verse two, you're also saying to Nineveh, when we look and break down, why is it that we look at verse three when Jonah's not ready to go? Here is some information about Nineveh. It's the large one of the last capitals of this of the ancient city of Assyria or the ancient area of Syria, eighteen hundred. Acres. It's located on the east bank of the Tigris River, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. And it's 500 miles northeast from Israel. So that's what God was calling uh, Jonah to do, to travel 500 miles. He was saying, take out your GPS, Jonah, put in there Nineveh. And so we know, he says, too, it's a great city, Historians complain that, or claim, excuse me, that magnificent walls were constructed eight miles around the inner city. The entire city had a circumference of 60 miles. Population could have been around 600,000 people. Some are speculating that the 120 at the end of the book were just children. So it could be anywhere from 120,000 up to possibly 600,000. We don't know. It's kind of like the mass exodus coming out of Egypt. It could have been up to 2 million people that Moses led out of Egypt to the promised land. And then the word announce, or you might see a call out in one of the versions, but there's another version that says announce. Most would say that literally means in the Hebrew to call out or to cry out or to shout out. So God was telling Jonah to go there and to shout out. Can you imagine him going to a city a people who are not Israelites but Gentiles and to shout out judgment. Now, most prophets were called out to speak against a city when God commanded. But now this is one of the first times, except for Amos who had to go to Israel, to go to an unbelieving foreign nation to go speak out judgment against them. So he had to actually go there. So you can imagine what Jonah was thinking at the time. Should I go or should I not? Should I go or should I stay? Wake you up a little bit now. Okay. All right. So the idea was that he was wondering and he was asking to himself, I can imagine. But here's the thing. When you think about announcement and judgment, too, we often think of it as a negative tone. Here, God was speaking against a nation. But as you look at this book, you may realize it may be a different tone. In fact, in fact, we'll see in chapter 3, he says a similar thing, the Lord says to Jonah, but he doesn't use the word against, he uses the preposition to. So God is opening up because he wants Jonah to go for a purpose. But when we hear judgment, we think of destruction. But is it possible that God could bring judgment upon a people or proclaim judgment, announce it with the intention to cause people to repent? See, is it possible that he could say, "Wait a minute, now I want to bring this to your attention that you are sinning against me, the Creator God." Could he bring it to the attention that saying, "I'm not going to destroy you, but as I bring this attention to you, could it be possible that you'd be willing to change, or it's possible that you'd be willing to repent?" But he brings forth this prophet, and he says, "Go and announce and judge this." Now, this is important for us to look and set this up because that's what he's doing here. And then it says, for their evil has come up before me. You may see in your version wickedness. I mean, it really it, because wickedness was brought forth. In fact, the Living Bible says that it smells to highest heaven, meaning the wickedness was up in the heavens. That's how God saw and smelled the wickedness of these people. Archaeologists confirm with a biblical witness to the wickedness of the Assyrians. They were well known for their brutality and cruelty. In fact, Sennacherib's grandson was known to, and I'm not trying to get here again to some of you. I know that we're all adults here, but he would uh, tear off lips and hands of his victims. Uh, He would flog victims alive, and then he would pile up skulls. It was heinous. It was wicked. It was evil. It was what the Hebrew word is ra, as evil as could ever be. But here, as evil as this nation and people could be, this city, God is still interested in getting their attention. God could have easily smited these people. In fact, with Sennacherib, we know that in Isaiah 37, the angel of the Lord came and smited 185,000 people. But God had compassion. And as we understand this book, we understand there's a compassion that exists for a people that are this heinous and this wicked. See, that's what the gospel is all about. Each one of us stood before God, heinous and wicked, an enemy of God. Each one of us stood before God with no hope. He offered us hope through his son. And when he offered us hope, and we drank from the well, we were able to be forgiven of our sin, received the joy and the peace and the hope, because God reached out to us with compassion. See, now, Jonah, what he was having a problem in here is that it says that in verse 3, he was struggling with with the idea that God would want to have compassion on these wicked people. That's why it says in one version, but in verse 3, it says, instead, Jonah, how many insteads are in our lives? Quote, instead. Instead, Lord, I'd rather go do this than do what you tell me what to do. God's telling him to go immediately at once, and he's saying, no, Lord, I'm going to go in the different direction. So Jonah arose, arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, you have to understand what Tarshish is located at. 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Said to be, archaeologists believe, historians believe, it's somewhere in southern Spain. So he went to Joppa, went on a ship to go across 2,500 miles. Instead of going 500 miles, he got his GPS out and said, Tarshish. I'm going." And he said, "'Lord, I'm not going to follow your GPS.'" What is God's GPS? This is what I see. I see a God's pursuit for sinners. I believe that's the direction he wants us to go as a people of God. But I believe that as we think of sinners, each one of us are sinners saved by grace. But there are sinners that we know that do not know the grace of God. And we who know that grace should follow through. So he's going on and he's fleeing from the presence of God. He goes down to Joppa and he goes to Tarshish and he pays the fare and went down to it. And when he went out to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now I want to just encourage you to understand God's mercy and his passion for compassion. Look with me if you would. Just put your finger here at at Jonah. Look with me to Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 12. Jeremiah 3 12. I just want to read this to you if you could. 3:12 I hear those pages turning. I appreciate it cuz I would love for you to just turn those pages and look with me. Chapter 3 verse 12. Here's God making an announcement again. He says, "Go and proclaim these words towards the north and saying, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you any longer in anger, for I am merciful," declares the Lord. "I will not be angry forever." See, God has this compassionate tone, yet he can declare judgment. He has a compassionate tone. Look with me, too, again, to Exodus chapter 34. Because, again, when he's on the mountain, Mount Sinai, with Moses, he declares it again because too often we think that God is out to get us, that when judgment comes that he's he's out to get us and destroy anyone before us, even the people in the Old Testament. But here is God in the Old Testament with such a compassionate tone. Look with me there, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, which is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfastness, love and faithfulness. Keep in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children's and to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Meaning God said, I'm compassionate, but there are going to be consequences when you sin. Now it's important to understand this too because in chapter 4 of Jonah, this is what Jonah said. This was the reason why he left. This is one of the reasons, the main reasons. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry angry, and he prayed to the Lord saying, "O oh Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country, which he's referring to right now chapter one, that it was why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's covenant love. That's Old Testament Abrahamic covenant love. It's his loyal love for his his covenant to his people, but to all nations. So God is being slow to anger with this compassionate tone. But does Jonah have that compassionate tone? No. No. See, Jonah right here is running in the opposite direction. He's angry. In fact, that word displeased is, guess what? The word rah. Jonah saw for evil for God to do that. Wow. Can you imagine? You ever feel that once in a while when you see God being so compassionate and merciful to someone you really don't want someone to have? Because they've hurt you. They've hurt you so deeply in the midst of your soul that you're like, Lord, I don't want you to bless that person right now. Come on, let's be honest. We've all had that thought. None of us, if you can really be honest before God, there's a deep-seated thing going on there. Each one of us. I can say I have. Because often we struggle with that compassionate tone in our hearts. And God is interested in Jonah being changed. Before we can reach people with great compassion, even as a church, God has to work on us. And we can still do it, but he wants to change us. He wants to get deep down and change our hearts. He wants us to get deep down, not to judge us, but so that we can repent and receive the incredible blessing and the grace and the mercy of God. But he has to do the work deep down. That's when we're set free. We don't even know we're in bondage at times when we have those thoughts. Jonah, what was happening was he wasn't making a wrong turn. (laughs) He was making a wrong choice. See, when we have our GPSs and we put on our destiny and sometimes we make a wrong turn, It goes rerouting, rerouting, and it reroutes us back to that. Now, you know, you can take off the tolls. You can take off the highways. You can figure out back roads if you want, but he'll reroute us, you know, back. When we make a wrong turn, that's unintentional. But when we intentionally make a wrong turn because we wanted to, like when you're driving with your wife and you want to push her buttons a little bit, make a wrong turn (laughs) intentionally. And she, what are you doing? I said, "Ah, I want to drive a different road. But what happens is it'll still reroute you. See, the grace is still there to reroute you. And see, God is saying, I'm still concerned. I still care for you. I still love you, even if you're doing that intentionally. But what happens when he reroutes us, we go into consequential mode. Because what happens is then we get the consequences that we get lost a little bit. We don't know where we're at. We don't understand. But sometimes the GPS can help a little bit, but not as much when you make a turn and it's still trying to reroute you. And see, that's what God is trying to do here. See, he takes off and we have these things where we navigate in life and we make choices. Sometimes they're the wrong choices. But where do you and I run? Where do we run when we're faced with something we don't want to do. Um, I know that there are prominent speakers who s- travel quite a bit, Christian experts and speakers who go around, and often I hear stories when they get on planes, they don't want to talk to people. <laughs> they get on the plane, they put on the headphones, and they try to be non-social. And then all of a sudden, God just puts something in their lap, and they have to talk and share the gospel or do something because they're tired and exhausted from their event, and they don't want to talk. But sometimes we avoid people. There's a people who we might avoid, people on a plane. We might avoid an argument in our lives. Where do we run to? Sometimes we run to the pleasures of life and hobbies. And sometimes we just hide from people. Um, I remember in 1994, I was in my city in Stanford, and we have a beach down about three or four miles from my house. And there's a walk around, and you can... My mother used to go and walk down there, my uncle too, and they would walk around for miles. They would do five or six turns. She used to come up and say, and I did a five of turns. I said, good. So she did five turns, and I walked with her once in a while, and I saw a couple. I was in Bible college, just finished, and I saw a couple from the church, at, uh, from our church in Stanford, and I didn't want to talk. I wanted to avoid them. So I said, let me turn my head. And I just avoided them, walked this way. And I said, okay, I don't have to talk to them. Go all the way around a few times and a few times. Come back and there's like a neck, there's a bridge with two areas where you can walk off from the the, the walkway into the parking lot. And I'm walking over to that small little bridge and lo and behold, I run right into that couple. Couldn't avoid them. (laughs) I had to talk to them. So we sat there and we talked. Now I'm 25, 26 years old. Here's a couple. We begin to talk. They're having problems in their marriage. They start sharing with me. I'm not even a pastor officially yet. Lo and behold, I sat there for over an hour and a half talking to them and met with them for an entire year helping them in their marriage. They were considering divorce. I saw them some years ago. The husband went on to be with the Lord. She told me, Bruno, Bruno, you were sent by God. But I avoided it. I'll be honest. I avoided it like the plague. I did not want to talk to them. But God had another plan. And sometimes we run even. Even when we're running, God still intervenes. God is still interested. Because there are people today where addicts run to addictions. People run to their depression and hide in it. And some just commit suicide and saying, no, I'm out of here like Kate Spade this past week, the billionaire who said, I wasn't satisfied enough with the billions. And then another one from CNN, that food critic, the chef, just ran out of here, said it's over. And see, that's what it comes down to. But how about our walk with God, even when we do so, as I mentioned God is still relentless to pursue us. But look in verse 4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and so the ship threatened to break. The word hurled is in a form in the Hebrew that is causal, meaning God actually did it. He didn't allow it, He caused the great wind to come. So He did it. God brought it. He intervened, He interrupted, He rerouted Jonah. And Jonah thought he was going 2,500 miles. In fact, verse 5 it says, Then the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it from them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Meaning that word, but, or in the narrative of a Hebrew, meaning that happened before the ship went down. So Jonah went in, went down and below to go to bed. He said, I got 2,500 miles, I'm going. I'm just going to go to sleep. Then the Lord brought a storm on, shaking up the boat to the point where in the Hebrew it says that it was practically breaking. And then God goes from where it was breaking to keeping the boat afloat. And here God is intervening, and they don't know what's happening. Then verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, what did you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that he, we may not perish. Watch this now. God calls Jonah to call out to the Ninevites. He doesn't do it, he's running from God. Now God calls a Phoenician sailor who is not a believer to call Jonah out. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's like a cool little thing going on there. Bad on Jonah, but God is trying to get, because here you see a rise in verse one, verse two, and now you see a rise in verse six. It's a call out, same verb in the Hebrew. He's calling him out. And he goes on to say this, and and they said to him, in verse 7, they said to another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. The evil, you know, that word is ra. Continues with that word. The most evil, the most used word for evil, wickedness. And see, sometimes what happens is we think God is out to get us when God is intervening. And sometimes what we do is we experience detours, but never God's denials. So even in the midst of this narrative, in the midst of this struggle, God is not wasting his time. He's working these things out, and he begins to maneuver and change, and he's getting their attention. And then in verse 8, it says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and and of what people are you? So they're beginning to, so here's the consequences. Sometimes we experience consequences, but never God's condemnation because God in his hand is working. And the Phoenician sailors are bringing that out. They're asking him questions. And here's the question, or here's the answer that Jonah gives him. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, an Israelite, one of God's, one of God's people. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Now, wait a minute. How can you be a Hebrew, fear the Lord and worship Him, and run 2,500 miles away from Him when you can't? It's an oxymoron. You can't get away from God. Even the psalmist said in 139 you can't get away from God. See, God is intervening. He's running away. And God, it would seem as though God is allowing things to happen where it's not just consequential, but it's possible that God would even try to destroy his own prophet. And when they're in the midst of this narrative, all of a sudden things go really bad. Because the sailors see that the the ship is about to break, the storm is coming heavy, they don't know what to do, they're calling on this so-called prophet. He doesn't really know what to do. He claims to be this prophet of God, but is doing the opposite of what he's claimed to be. And then in verse 10 it goes this, Then the men were exceedingly afraid of him and said, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Three times we see in this narrative he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He tells these unbelieving sailors, and then they repeat it to him and remind him, you've told that to us already. And so, lo and behold, what's happened is that we see there's a problem here because here they go on to say that you have, Jonah goes and he goes on to saying, listen, this is how you end this. Throw me over, and this will end everything. See, Jonah knew he was in sin. Jonah knew he fell. Jonah knew by running away from God, he was not honoring God. And so what happened? He said, throw me over. But what was the kindness and gracious and compassion of these Phoenician sailors? Sailors, They were trying to maneuver the boat to save his life. They had more compassion for Jonah than Jonah had for the 120,000 plus of the Ninevites. He did not want to go there. He was willing to die. He was willing to say, I'm done. i just rather, just throw me over. Call it suicide, I'll throw myself over. I'm done. I don't want to follow God in this. I'm angry. I'm displeased. I consider it wickedness. And here God in his mercy and his grace and his compassion, his love and his hope, he says, I'm still considering Jonah. If he's considering the Assyrians who were brutal and cruel, why would he not consider his own prophet? And here, lo and behold, we see in the story, in verse 12, he said, "He said So they picked him up and hurled him into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down. He says, you know, hurl me in. 13, he says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptious, temptious and against them. And therefore, verse 14, They called out to the Lord. They called out to Yahweh. Here are Phoenician sailors who could not see the example of a Jonah who was supposed to be a Hebrew worshiping God and following being an example. They, in their fear, called out to Yahweh. And Yahweh says, Let us not perish for this man's life and lay us on innocent blood for you, O Lord. Have it done as it's pleased to you. And then verse 15, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea three times the word hurls here god hurls this particular uh, wind and storm he says hurl me into the and he says he hurled them or hurled out the cargo and now they want to hurl him into the sea see god was showing compassion to not only the sailors but to Jonah and see, he goes on to say, so they picked him up. And then verse 16, they, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So here is this contrast. You have Jonah who is not honoring God, not worshiping and not fearing him, running away from him, And you have these unbelievers who are running toward God and fearing God. And what's happening here? God in his mercy and his compassion Continues to intervene in rerouting Jonah. So much that he reroutes Jonah and allows him to be thrown over the ship into what we'll know in the next chapter, into a big fish. They say a whale, but most would say a fish. A big one. A big one swallows him up. Why? To save his life. Can you imagine if you're thrown over a ship that it's supposed to save your life, not destroy it? that God was compassionate enough to call out the Ninevites, to call out all these people in judgment, but really he wants to reach them. Jonah should have been destroyed and killed by God, but God in his mercy and his grace and his compassion and his love says, no, I'm gonna deal with Jonah, and go so far as that he gives an opportunity for the sailors to recognize him. Some scholars would believe that he could have, they could have been saved, the sailors, they recognized him, But they were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. They just added this to their gods. But they recognized Yahweh. But how many of us today, when we think someone's out to call us, call us out, do we see it as just judgment? Do we see it as someone pointing out our wrongs so they can hurt us? How about when God wants to call us out personally, when he's revealing something in our lives? What's the intention? To hurt us? Or is God interested in changing us and restoring us? See, when we're supposed to be calling out our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we have in our intentions to hurt someone, then we shouldn't be doing it. But even even in the New Testament, it says that as we apply this to our own lives, how can we be compassionate towards others? Not only to those who are far away from God, those, and we're going to talk about that because that's in chapter 3, but God is dealing with Jonah, who's one of his. God is gracious and merciful enough to say, I love you, Jonah. I want to call you out. But how about us? We're sometimes so afraid to do that because we're afraid of offending people. We're afraid that we have it all together or we know we don't have it all together, but we don't want anyone else to know that we don't have it all together. But it's our duty because when we do it, it's an act of love. It's an act of compassion. When someone calls me out in love, one of my mentors or my colleagues, it's a beautiful thing because... If it's sin in my life that I don't know about, then I want them to reveal it to me so I can ask God to change me. You know, it even says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness. P- pay close attention to yourselves so that you are not tempted to. Carry one another's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, that's what I think in this story, in this first chapter here, is God saying that even if you make a wrong turn or a wrong choice, I'm there. I'll reroute you back to me. He made a wrong choice, not a wrong turn, because it was intentional. God's saying, I'm rerouting him back to me. But in that rerouting, there are going to be consequences. Are we willing to live with those consequences, or are we covering them up? See, Jonah was honest. He's saying, I'm leaving Leave it on the next train. Don't know when I'll be back again. And that's what he did. He went on the boat. God was merciful and gracious and kind. And that's what we have to ask ourselves that continuing question as a people of God. You guys are going through a transition as a church. God wants to change each and every one of us. He wants to change us just like he wanted to change Jonah so Jonah can be on there. He doesn't need us. He didn't need Jonah. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you he doesn't need any of us he wants us he wants us to be going forward he wants us to be a part of his love the greatest times I've learned and grown in faith and love and compassion is when God had to deal with something in my own life you and I will never have compassion until we see when God shows his compassion to us through trials and tribulations will you ever see that I have seen God work in ways that are beyond me when I was down and out and living in something I shouldn't have been living in. It made me want to love him more. And when I saw and experienced that compassion, I wanted to tell someone else about it. I wanted to restore a brother or sister in Christ. The reason why at 25 years old I was able to help that couple was because I was able to understand some of their struggle. Because God took a man as wretched as I, I was sharing with Sophia the other day, Um, It's hard when your nine-year-old is saying, Daddy, were you a bad boy? Yes, sweetheart, I will tell you the truth. I was a bad boy. You don't want to know what I did at your age. Nobody wants to know in this room what I used to do. But I know, I said, sweetheart, I have a loving God who forgives me, who's compassionate and merciful toward me every day, that I don't live in that guilt, thinking what I used to do. I can move on. And I can help others with that. But the only reason why I can help others with that is because God changed me. That's what God wants to do with each one of you. A people who are collectively together as a church, the ecclesia, need to be the compassionate ones. I'm gonna challenge you today. I don't know, maybe the Spirit's, I was last night up pretty late and I just felt the Spirit tell me some things that needs to be done or not still a lot of hurt and pain in this church. And I want to encourage you, don't let it pass before you can say, God, I know what it is. Don't let me be Jonah and run away. You can't run, I can't run. Deal with that pain. and I challenge you even further. If you have something against someone else in this room, I want to challenge you to go to that brother or sister in love because you and I will never get further than we are until we do so. I've been there. I'm still challenged at times in my life. I want to encourage you to do so because then you'll receive the joy and the hope and the peace and the assurance knowing that no matter what, God loves you. You can't fool God. God doesn't waste his time. I can't fool God. God doesn't waste his time with me. God didn't waste his time with Jonah. He wants you and I to be compassionate, but it has to start in the body of Christ. So I wanna encourage you today as we're going into communion, this is an opportunity for you today because God in his mercy and his grace offered us his son. And when he offered us his son, he'd offered us the hope for sinners, the ransom for sinners, for sinners. Guess what? I hope it's not a surprise to you. (laughs) But before you came to Christ, you were an enemy of God. And before you came to Christ, each one of us were considered wicked before God. Because It's not personal with God. Sin is sin. There's no level of sin with God. God has sin in front of him. When he sees sin, it's just sin. So I wanna encourage you as we are preparing for a time of worship through communion, I wanna challenge you today. There's still something going on and listen, don't let it go, deal with it, that's the best time. And today we're gonna give you an opportunity. We're gonna put the elements up here. We're gonna let you come on your time, but this is an altar. We've been trying to do this for you guys for a while. Who cares who sees you? When you and I pass this life, we're standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're going to have to answer to him. I'm going to have to answer to him. And if you know there's something in your life, don't let this pass. This is an opportunity. Don't wait to feel it. You know it's there. It's a choice you have to make. This church will move farther and quicker if you do that. So I want to challenge you to do that